our scripture reading today will come from Romans chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 23. That's page 1003 in your pew Bibles. Again, that's Romans chapter 16, verses 15 through 23. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin or death or of obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Good morning. Hope everybody is having a wonderful morning this morning. What beautiful weather outside. We're starting to warm up just a little bit. This season comes as a two-edged sword to me. I'm glad the fishing's going to get better, but I'm going to miss uh, this weather when it's 98 degrees and I'm sweating when I'm standing up here teaching a class. Appreciate very much the capable reading of the scripture. I know it was a little bit lengthy, but I chose this passage in Romans because I think it's very appropriate. Uh, David has been preaching out of Romans some, and we have three of our adult Bible classes that are studying this book. And Romans is about salvation, and what more important uh, can, uh, subject can we talk about than salvation? And I wanted to talk about this passage in its context and talk about the preceding context a little bit. And how it comes to us is that freedom is not free. The very last verse of the reading this morning was probably the most well-known verse from this passage. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I hear that verse used a lot in the context of that, well, we get this free gift of salvation from God and then we can sit back in the lazy boy and we don't have to do anything or this gift doesn't cost us anything. And that's not what the Bible teaches and the wording that Paul chooses to use that's translated free gift uh, is interesting to look at. And I want to look at it this morning because we don't need to mislead people about what it takes to become a Christian when we give them a plan of salvation. But we also need to refrain from telling them it's not an easy life and it's not a life that is free for the rest of that time that you get your get out of jail free card and your fire insurance policy and the waters of baptism and then the rest of life will be easy. I can't think of a single servant of God that we would look at in the Bible and they would say that being a servant to God is free 
and it's easy and it's no obligation. Would Moses say that? Would Joshua say that? Would Isaiah and Jeremiah say that? Would Peter, John, Paul, Timothy, any of those people say that? And of course, if you've read your Bible, you know that they would not. If anything else, if we just read those folks and we had no hope of heaven, we would probably really think about whether or not we wanted to serve God. So sometimes we see things advertised as free that may not be free. I decided to do you a favor kind of as an illustration part of this sermon this morning. Many of you may have traveled to like Panama City Beach or some of the other beaches in the world and gone and seen a sign in the beach stores. You know, there's a carbon copy of these beach stores all along the way. And the sign that your children doesn't, don't miss is free hermit crabs. And these two children are not my children, obviously, in that way. But they have obviously been to a store where there's free hermit crabs. And last time we were in Daytona Beach, my daughter Presley, who has the eyes of a hawk when it comes to things like that, saw the sign, free hermit crabs. Well, we're not stopping, we're not stopping, we're not stopping. Well, the rest of the week, you know they got free hermit crabs down at the store. I'd love to get a free hermit crab. I resisted this with all my strength because I knew they would not be free. And so you walk in the store, and maybe some of you can commiserate with me on this right here, and you maybe went and bought a hermit crab. You said, well, yeah, the hermit crabs are free, but you have to buy them this little cage that they sell at the store, and you got to buy some of the feed and that stuff. And you may get out 15 or 20 bucks, and you think you've got it made like these beautiful, happy children. But I'm going to tell you that if these children left the hermit crabs in those cages for much more than a couple of weeks, they wouldn't have to worry about keeping the hermit crabs anymore because they would be dead. And so we think they're free, but not so much are they free. This is a picture of my house. This is the abode of Tarzan Jr. and Jane, who are the two resident hermit crabs that I have in my home. And you may notice up there all the pictures not very good because the heat lamp makes it hard to see, but in the back there's a humidity gauge, there's an inch and a half coconut sand bed in there, there's a $40 heat lamp, there is a humidifier that I built myself out of an aquarium pump and a glass of water, and there is food, there's a salt water dish, you have to have salt water and fresh water uh, in there. And so that's about $125 that you get to spend on free hermit crabs. <laughs> now some of you guys are like, I just let them die and I just do this right here. Look, we got three cats, two dogs, and now two hermit crabs in our house. We don't let animals die. Uh, I've got one dog that's been trying to die for five years now and I won't let it. <laughs> but this same, this same thing here is the idea of something that's advertised as free maybe, or maybe a misleading advertisement. I'm certainly not telling you that the Bible is misleading, but sometimes the way we translate the free gift of God may have a little bit more to it than we may know. So if any of you guys want to know something about hermit crabs and how to take care of them, you come see myself and Presley, uh, and we'll help you out. If you'd like to buy Tarzan and Jane, uh, we would not be able to sell those to you, but I might be willing to sell those to you. You can tell I don't get to name the hermit crabs. I named the dogs. That's why it's Julius and Athena. And the, the cats are Snowball and Princess and Fuzzy. Okay? I didn't name those. They have to have historical names. What about God's gift? What about God's gift of His Son, Jesus Christ? Is it a free gift? It's advertised in the Bible in the English translation as a free gift. But I don't believe it's a free gift. I believe it was freely given by God. And it was graciously given by God. But it's not a gift that doesn't come with any obligation. We think about gift, we think about birthdays, we think about Christmas, a present wrapped up under the tree that we may not even have to give somebody anything for. My family has experienced tremendous generosity because of your gifts to us during 
Tracy's bout with cancer and with chemotherapy, we have received a lot of gifts that we don't deserve and that we don't do anything back for, but we're so thankful to have those wonderful and gracious gifts from you. And I appreciate that to all of you very much. That's a gift from people that want to give uh, to help someone out. I'm thankful for that, all the food and things that are brought to our house. But I think about God's free gift, and I got to thinking about the context that we want to look at in Romans, and it has to start back in chapter 5. For context's sake, we're going to briefly just talk about Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll go on and finish uh, chapter 5 in a little bit and see. Don't worry, we're not going to read all that, but I want to paint the context. The good news is we're only going to look in the book of Romans today. And there's a reason I wanted to couch my lesson that way is that we have no evidence whatsoever at the time the Romans received this letter that they had had any apostolic preaching done there. We talked a few weeks ago in our class on Mission Emphasis Day that we believe the Roman church was probably started by some Romans that were there at the day of Pentecost. Uh, we don't have any evidence of any other apostle traveling there. So we don't know what the Romans had heard. And many people, scholars, look at this book as Paul trying to write the entire gospel to the church in Rome and explain a lot of things to them because they had not yet had a great deal of revelation uh, given to them. So we don't know. And also, especially when we talked about the context uh, that Mr. Kirby read up here about slavery, slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness, in the Roman mind, in the city of Rome, that context carried a lot of weight. And I'll explain that as we go on. But Romans 5, 1 through 11, we see that Christians are justified by faith. Paul uses a lot of Old Testament rhetoric uh, as rhetoric in Romans. He talks about Adam died and one man's sin came into this world, but he contrasts that with by one man salvation came into this world. One man's sin brought death, another man's sacrifice brings life. Christ, we're, Christians are justified by faith uh, in God. We have peace in God through faith in Christ Jesus. He talks about, and it's interesting, this language that he uses in five, that there is suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Well, right off the bat, we see that it's not going to be easy because he wouldn't use the word suffering and endurance if the Christian life was going to be a cushy, couch potato type lifestyle. And then Christ died for us, uh, that I believe I heard Josh read during the thing, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And starting in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, we see Paul begin to use a lesser to greater argument. He talks about things that are lesser, death and sin and disobedience, and he talks about things that are greater in contrast to that. He talks about eternal life. He talks about righteousness. He talks about sanctification. He talks about the gift uh, that was given to us for that. And I want to kind of look at some of those verses in the middle of chapter 5. Excuse me. We see that hope doesn't disappoint in 5 because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We're justified by his blood. We're saved from wrath. In verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through Jesus Christ our Lord, whom we've now received the reconciliation. And then we go into 12 through 21 and we look at these comparisons. We got one man, Adam, and Christ was like Adam. He was a son of God. He was the son of God. And he came and he was a human. 
But he didn't create sin. He didn't bring sin into the world. He combated sin. And in 15 and 16, we see that the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one, man, if by one man's offense many died, I'm going to show you the lesser or the greater idea. Paul says, one man's offense many died, and we're talking about a spiritual death, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. You see, we have many that died because of one man, but much more, an abounding quantity of grace we have through Jesus Christ. And the gift is not like that in verse 16, which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment that came through the one offense resulted in condemnation. So we have judgment, sin, condemnation on one hand, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And I've been thinking a lot about that idea. And Paul uses a couple of different words here for gift. He uses a gift and the Greek word is a sense is just a gift. Just as if we see the magicians from the Orient bring a gift to Jesus Christ uh, when he's a child. They bring the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those are a gift. But he also uses a different Greek word when he talks about the free gift. And it's the same root word that we get our word grace from. It comes from that word that means unmerited favor, a gracious favor given to us by God. That's different than just a gift, right? The free gift is not like that old dirty, nasty sin because it resulted in death and, and destruction uh, and being separated from God. But this free gift that we have is different. We have this wonderful, gracious gift that's given by God. God doesn't have to forgive us. God didn't have to forgive the Israelites. He was very gracious with the Israelites through all the way through the time of the prophets, from the golden calf all the way to the prophets. God was very forgiving of the Israelites when they didn't deserve it. Uh, and he even preserved a remnant of them from total destruction in that way. God is a gracious God. And his grace, however, comes with a little bit of cost that we'll talk about as we go through. But I want you to keep in mind the idea of a free gift is not necessarily the language that we may think of when we sign up for a bank account. You get a, a free gift or you get something uh, in the mail that's a free gift. It's not in that same uh, way that we would look at it in that way. We have this disobedience that we have through, through uh, Adam. When we think about what does that mean? Well, we keep on going in 15 through 21. Disobedience yields to sin. Obedience, however, by contrast, yields righteousness. Sin increases, but grace abounds. And the abound word is a much larger word, a huge word than the idea of increases. Sin reigned in death, but grace reigns through righteousness and it leads to eternal life. You see how much better it is? Paul takes these dirty, nasty things over here that are low and he compares them to things that are beautiful and wonderful and much bigger and greater. Our God and our Christ is much bigger and greater than anything in this world. He's bigger and greater than Adam. The book of Hebrews spends the whole book talking about how Christ is superior to the law of Moses, to the old high priest, to everything that came before. And this way of argument was a common argument in Greek rhetoric and even in Jewish rhetoric on taking something that's little and saying it's better by comparing it to something that's better. But what do we got to do? We talk about this sin, this death, Chapter 6 starts out talking to us that we can overcome this because of baptism. And we see as, as we look at the beginning of chapter 6 all the way really through verse 13, what can we do about it? What shall we say then? Well, if grace is going to abound because sin increases, why don't we just sin more? 
Why don't we sin more so grace can abound? Well, well, Paul turns around, of course, in his rhetorical way and answers his own question and says, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous because we died to sin. He says we because he's talking to fellow Christians. All the New Testament epistles were written to Christians. He said, we died to sin. Remember, we were buried like he was buried, like he died, but then we were raised to walk in the newness of life. We put off that old man of sin and death. So it's a ridiculous statement to say that we're going to come back and we're going to keep on sinning after we become Christians. And we get confused about that a lot because the denominational world and the evangelical Christian world puts out this dime store salvation and candy apple Christianity that says, you've been, you've been, it's okay if you keep sinning. It's okay if habitual sin remains in your life because God loves you. The Bible doesn't teach that. First John chapter one doesn't teach that. We cannot walk in darkness and think the blood of Christ forgives us. That doesn't work spiritually. The Bible doesn't teach that. Paul says, I have to bruise my eye. I have to beat my body to stay in salvation with Christ. You know, salvation, brothers and sisters, is a destiny, not an event. We have to keep our salvation. We have to keep with Christ. So Paul says, you can't keep on sinning, hoping that grace would abound more. That didn't make any sense. I've just told you that sin is disgusting. It leads to death. It's unrighteous. It's separated from God. It's what Adam brought in this world when he transgressed. But no, no, I've got something bigger and better. It's Christ that brings salvation. So we have that through baptism, which that is given to us by God. The plan of salvation given to us by God. We didn't come up with it. We didn't manufacture our way out. He did give us that plan of salvation. And so I get baptized and then, whew, I can sit back and take it easy and I'm good to go for the rest of my life. If that's the plan of salvation you've been taught, you've been taught an incomplete plan of salvation because it comes with obligations. Christ goes on, uh, Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14 of chapter six, that we have to present ourselves. It says in 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here we have another clue, kind of like we had a clue about suffering and endurance before, that Paul tells us it's gonna be work because the Greek word that he uses here for instruments, we gotta present our members, our body, the parts of our body, everything we have in service to God. The Greek word there is hoplon, which is the word that was used for hoplites. Some of you guys that have heard of Greek history know that their soldiers were called hoplites. They were called that because their shield was called a hoplon. I couldn't resist putting a little bit of Greek artwork up in the slideshow this week, or it just wouldn't be me if I didn't do that. But these men use these as instruments of war. Paul uses this same word in Romans 13 when he talks about putting on the armor of light. When he talks to the Corinthian church, he talks to them about weapons, about using things. If we're going to present ourselves as instruments to God, that's something that he's going to work with. Soldiers didn't take their armor and their shield and their weapons into battle and lay them aside and just stand there and let the battle happen. It was something that they used. It was critical for their life. It was critical for victory. It was critical to accomplish the goal that they were going in. Paul says here, you've got to present your bodies you know, as instruments, not as instruments for unrighteousness and sin, but as for righteousness uh, to God, being alive from the dead. You know, he just talked about being buried with Christ, being raised to walk in a newness of life. And here he says, remember, you're alive, you're not dead. 
And so we go into our reading today to finish up and we talk about the idea of slavery. And slavery has a very negative connotation in the 21st century mind because for 21st century Americans, the only picture of slavery we have is the disgusting and filthy institution that existed in the 18th and 19th century in the southern United States, a time when ignorant people even stood in pulpits and waved the Bible as supporting slavery. The reason that's ignorant is because they didn't understand slavery. And I know that when we read this, some translations even try to use the word servant. They say slaves of sin and servant to righteousness to kind of ease it a little bit. But they're the same word. If Paul wanted to use a little bit lighter word here than slavery, he has the same Greek word that we translate as deacon or servant when he talks about Phoebe. He has a different word, but he uses the word slave. It's translated sometimes bondservant, but it's slavery. So just for a minute, I want you to put your first century glasses on as you think about what your obligation may be in doing this. Just a little bit of background on that. Rome did exist as a slave economy. A slave economy is defined by a society that has more than 30% of its population enslaved. And there's been five of those major ones in history. Greece, before the Roman conquest, the world of Rome, and we have also Brazil. We don't think about Brazil, but in the 14th and 15th and 16th century, it was a Portuguese slave economy to harvest sugar cane. We have the Caribbean from the English and the French, and then the one most familiar to us, the southern United States. In the American South in the 19th century, one out of three persons was an African slave. And they were similar in many ways. The slavery that existed in the United States was very similar in many ways to that of the Roman economy, is that they were regarded as property. They were subject to physical and sexual and emotional abuse. There was an extant slave trade. When you read in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about kidnappers, that word is talking about people that took people and sold them into slavery. They were subject to rebellion. Most of you know the most famous Roman slave in the world was Spartacus who about 80 years before this was written led the most successful slave rebellion, well successful is a tough word, led the most lengthy slave rebellion against Rome. It wasn't successful because 6,000 of them were crucified uh, when they were all called, but tens of thousands of people. Seneca, one of the great Roman orators said, you have as many enemies as you have slaves. And so it was looked at as it was subject to rebellion uh, and a negative thing in some ways, but it was critical to the economy. Rome was a city of a million people that had to feed itself. Some Roman historians say that men that owned the fields around Rome that fed Rome would have up to 4,000 slaves working for one person. But there's always much different. And so I want you to get in your mind what Paul is talking when the Roman church hears the word slavery and we've got to be slaves, that it doesn't appear to them as something that was politically debated or something that was morally debated. It was a way of life. It would be the equivalent of me saying, you know what, 70% of the American workforce is going to stop working tomorrow. That's how critical it would be to the economy. We're not going to go to work. We're going to quit working. America's getting more and more like that, I know, in a higher percentage of people. But we're going to quit working. What would that do to the American economy in a matter of days or weeks? It's the same thing there. But enslavement in Rome had nothing to do with race. It had a lot to do with captives of war. Orphans that were born would have become slaves. People sold themselves into slavery because of financial difficulties. We see Jesus talk about that uh, quite a bit. And also, people would sell their children into slavery to solve debts. Jews and Romans uh, would do that. So a lot of ways people got into it. And of course, if you were a slave, you would be born into slavery. However, 
something that would be unheard of in the American South 150 years ago. Slaves could own property, they could earn wages, and they could even buy their own freedom. Uh, matter of fact, Augustus had to pass laws that said quit freeing as many slaves. He put an age limit. He said you can't free a slave until the age of 30. Too many slaves were being freed. They were trusted with managerial roles and education roles. You think about Jesus when he talked about the master giving his servants talents. He gave his slaves things to do and we see that constantly in Jesus' parables where he gives servants responsibilities. They were not the subject of political debate and actually a freed slave would come out in higher social status than that of a freeborn Roman citizen who was of a lower social class. You remember the parable when Jesus says the man goes to the marketplace and he says, I want you to come work for a denarius for me today. And then he comes back and he gets more and he gets more and he gets more. Those day workers that are being mentioned there are the lowest rung of the ladder in the social class. But they would be born free. But they were of a lower social class than many free Roman citizens, I mean Roman slaves. And even some of the Roman slaves became citizens. So when we think about that in the Romans' mindset when they got this letter, it was not necessarily something that we would think about when we think about the enslavement institution that went on here in the United States. I'm not supporting Roman slavery. I'm just telling you that it was very much different. So you cannot compare the two of them. And it wasn't a subject of political uh, debate. And there's no way the slave masters that existed in the horrible institution that was in the United States would have ever given their slaves freedom much less give them freedom and say you're a higher social class when they regarded their fellow human beings as animals. That, that comes from an absence of God being involved in it. Is sin your master? God, Paul plainly says here, we're either going to be servants of righteousness or we'll be servants of destruction. He plainly says that if you want to be a servant of sin, it's going to result in death. But he goes on to talk about a different form of servitude, one that leads to life and it produces fruit. We see in the latter part of our reading here that the fruit produced is righteousness, sanctification, eternal life. Do we ever think about ourselves being slaves to God? But wait a minute, Jesus is supposed to set me free. The truth will set you free. You're gonna learn the truth, it'll set you free. But we trade, when we become Christians, we trade masters. Remember how Jesus said, when you can't serve two masters because you're gonna love one, hate the other? You will serve a master. You are not free when you're a Christian. You're not free to do your will. You're not free to do whatever you want to do. You can, but you also choose the consequences. You're going to trade masters. So you say, I'm free, but I'm free to be a slave. And for some people, they can't swallow that. But in the Roman mind, a slave was a worker. A slave was somebody that was critical to the economy, and not just a worker in the fields. They would have been educators, physicians, marketplace managers. A slave was somebody who was critical a critical part of society, somebody that was so, we couldn't live without it, but they were servants that worked. And Paul says, I'm talking to you in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In the mind of the Romans, I've got to be a slave, but I'm freed from this nasty slavery that results in evil and death, and I move on to a slavery that results in eternal life. Sanctification, I'm set apart for the work of God. What does this new slavery cost me? It may cost me my social status. It may cause me to have to give up habits and start making some decisions about the habits in my life. It may cost us some friends. I often tell the people in the jail, when you get out of here, don't go back being friends with the people you were friends with because you're going to be back here in jail. It's going to cost us having to be obedient. And in the arrogant American minds, we can't even stand to be obedient to our bosses at work 
But we may have to be obedient to a set of rules that we may not always like having to follow those rules. We have to have commitment. We may have to have humility. And for us as prideful human beings, that's a tremendous cost. But the biggest thing is lifelong service. Matthew 25 Jesus didn't separate the sheep from the goats. The king didn't separate the sheep from the goats by saying, oh, we did a much better job of worshiping me or you didn't worship me. They were lifelong workers. You fed the hungry, you clothed the naked, you visited the sick, you worked, you did things, and that's why you get to pass by here. We ex I expect things of you as my servant. So we read this passage in Romans 15, kind of... Uh, Concluding here, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. The wages of sin is death. And I think about choosing. Do we choose the earned income of sin? We know what it results in. It's interesting that slaves were paid and could buy their own freedom. And so the idea of the Romans hearing about wages because of serving as a slave to something would have been real. It would have been payment. And so we think about when Paul says the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's the termination of life. It's the end of things spiritually for you and ultimately long term will be spiritually for us. But we're going to turn around and say, well, I'm going to be a slave to Christ. I'm going to be obedient. And the reward for that is not money. It's not something we can use in this world. The reward for that is eternal life. And so perhaps I'm not a very good evangelist. I choose the graciousness of God, but I also choose the obligation that comes with that covenant. Nowhere in the Bible in all the covenants, whether it's Abraham or with Moses or with those who returned from exile in Babylon or with the Christian covenant, the covenant is two-sided. You have to obey. And obedience to God means work. It means you are a slave, a servant, a worker in God's kingdom. And it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you the freedom for you to say, I want to do things my way. But the good news is that it leads to eternal life. The graciousness of God is, is you'll come and serve me a life that begins in baptism and ends in a home in heaven one day that Jesus has gone to prepare for all of his servants. The reward is much better. We're going to serve one master or the other. We're going to do work for one master or the other. I want to do work for the master that's going to give me the eternal reward. It may be difficult. It may mean standing alone sometimes, but I want that eternal life. I'm looking long-term down the road instead of short-term, those wages that I try to earn in this life. You might be here this morning, you're like, well, I don't know about that, Tim. That doesn't sound like such a good deal. I've heard that Christianity is easy, and, and I buy into Christianity. I become a Christian. Everything's going to be easy. If I stood up here and told you that, I would be a liar, and I'm not going to stand up here and lie. But I can tell you that being part of this family, especially in the past four to five months, has been the greatest blessing I've ever had in my life because everybody here has my back. Everybody here has my wife's back, my family's back. And that's the case for so many people that I didn't realize until I got into ministry full time that I see what people here do for one another. I heard a wise woman here one time quote the Bible and say she's never seen the righteous go hungry. We may go without some things, but like David said in a sermon last week, we can do all those things through Christ who strengthens us. But if you don't have Christ today, if you don't have that in your life, you haven't even started that journey, or if you've abandoned that journey and you've handed back over the reins to the master that is driving you with sin, 
and that's who you serve. I urge you today, don't leave here like that. Don't leave here still serving the wrong master because if you believe in the word of God, it's going to kill you and it's going to destroy your life. Turn around, come home, be with the family that will stir you up to love and good works like the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 10. That's why we're together. That's why we're here. And I encourage you, don't go through your life without looking forward to the hope that's in the end. You may have suffering, but God says that'll bring endurance and ultimately it'll bring hope. I don't want you to leave here without hope this morning, but I want you to know that if you make a commitment to Christ, it's a lifelong commitment of work for him. But you're gonna work doing something. You might as well work for the promise of eternal life. If there's any way we can help you this morning, either being baptized into Christ or to get your life back on the right track, or if you just need prayers for hangups and hurts in your life that you need help with, don't leave here today without that. We'd love to help you.